Welcome. Hi, I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. everyone, you are listening to Wikipedia. I am Mickey and this week on the podcast I'm super excited to bring to you the conversation that I had with Dominic D'Agostino who will be no stranger to anyone interested in ketogenic diets and their application in science and also just in everyday life. The keto diet has absolutely exploded in the last five to seven years and um, Dom and I talk all about that alongside the emerging science of how beneficial the ketogenic diet can be in particular therapeutic applications. We chat about the utility of the ketone supplements for health and performance, the disconnect between the known and emerging science, and the public perception of the ketogenic diet, and where people get details wrong. So Dom is the Associate Professor at a University of South Florida, and he teaches students of the Morsani College of Medicine and Department of Molecular Pharmacology and Physiology with a focus on topics such as neuropharmacology, medical biochemistry, physiology, neuroscience and neuropharmacology and we chat a little bit about his ability to go in there and chat to these up-and-coming med students about nutritional therapy even though it's not necessarily on the formal curriculum. He is also a research scientist at the Institute for Human and Machine Cognition and he assists with their efforts towards optimizing the safety, health and resilience of the warfighters and astronauts. His lab develops and tests metabolic therapies including caloric restriction protocols, intermittent fasting, ketogenic diets and exogenous ketones for CNS oxygen toxicity i.e. sieges, epilepsy, metabolic disorders, Alzheimer's disease, ALS, muscle wasting, cancer and human performance applications and anyone who follows Dom on Instagram will see that he is not only super interested in the professional application of these sorts of therapies, but he also loves to challenge himself with other personal endeavors and, and things like that as well. And you'll see his Instagram profile has a range of these different experiments, and he's really generous with that information that he shares. His personal website is ketonutrition.org, and there's a host of really awesome information on there for anyone interested and he is one of the organizers of the metabolic health summit which i'm going to this year and have attended online the previous couple of years and we'll put links to the metabolic health summit in the show notes for those people who are interested in attending themselves in early may this year before we crack on into the podcast though, just like to remind you the best way for you to support us is to hit the subscribe button on your podcast app and uh, leave us a five-star review. That would be amazing. Share it with your friends. And then if you do want to go the extra step, why don't you jump on my website and hook yourself up with a sweet as meal plan to help plan your foods you don't even have to think about it with one of my athlete nutrition plans or my just my real food nutrition plan or if you're interested in fat loss I've got my fat loss plan for women and men the man plan 
or if you just need some recipe inspiration 12 bucks a month gives you access to my recipe library which is regularly updated and access to me to answer your nutrition related questions in addition to weekly email our written forum and a really connected facebook group all right team please enjoy this conversation that i had with dom d'agostino Dom, thank you so much for joining me this morning, your afternoon. Um, it's a real honour to have the opportunity to speak to you. You are like, I'm, I'm going to say you're like the OG in keto space, but of course, keto diets have been around for over 100 years. And I think it's just, your name is almost synonymous with ketogenic diets, metabolic health for a lot of people who are like me, who are interested, have explored a little bit because you seem to be all over it. You do the research stuff, you live the lifestyle, and you're constantly experimenting in it. And I think the first time I heard of you was 2015 in Tim Ferriss's uh, interview. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and we do, I have to say, you know, we we do basic science researcher, you know, as a researcher in neuroscience, I was trained in like cell biology, uh, and looking at metabolism and neurons, and that that led to animal research, and we do you know some of that, and then we do human clinical trials. Uh, I do self experimentation on myself, and I like to test different diets and do a lot of uh, blood work, and then we also participate, actually, me and my wife, as research subjects in different types of, uh, experiments, you know, with, uh, government organizations like NASA, actually we've lived underwater for a while and we measure wow. different things in our body. And so it has been, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to sort of do what I do in academia where I can, um, work with students who are great. Uh, I work with PhD students and med students. They recognize the importance of nutrition. And mm. uh, unfortunately, the medical curriculum does not, you know, formally teach it, but we do teach it. We have a course, scholarly concentrations, where the students do get involved in actual uh, research. And I think many of them increasingly more recognize that nutrition needs to be part of medical training, really, because it's uh, it, it's a big needle to move when it comes to you know, the, the health of their patients. Yeah, absolutely. And it seems that right now for a lot of the doctors who are uh, practitioners, if they've got any sort of nutrition um, knowledge, it's because they've taken the time outside of their practice to go and investigate it. Because of course, I know a lot of doctors who are very interested in low carb and ketogenic approaches, um, both therapeutically for certain medical conditions, but also just for the, if I say basic, but metabolic health, helping their patients lose weight and, um, and sort of getting their blood sugar under control, which I remember when I started talking about the keto diet to some friends back in maybe 2010 or, or around that time, and we'd we'd gone through the nutrition curriculum together, um, a science degree, and you'd hear this oh, ketogenic diet, it's, it creates ketoacidosis, that's a really dangerous sort of state. So that was my, I suppose, understanding until, of course, I learned more about it in my um, older years. How did you come across the idea of a ketogenic diet and and what's your sort of foray into the area? Yeah, good question. I, well, I went through uh, 
I was in a dietetics program at Rutgers University and also uh, double majoring in biology. And then I went the nutrition science route The as that route. Uh, it was a few more classes, but I didn't have to do like my clinical rotations and things like that for a dietitian. So, um, and during my nutrition training, I think it was only, I took a few graduate courses, advanced nutrition one and two. We briefly talked about the ketogenic diet, but it was very negative connotations associated with it. Yeah. The term ketoacidosis, fad diet. Uh, then we briefly talked about protein sparing modified fast and how that killed people who hmm. were on, you know, just consuming like collagen or so it left kind of a bad taste in my mouth. I, I was aware of a keto diet in the context of things like fitness and bodybuilding as an extreme way to lose weight or lose fat. Mm. And I realized that it could be very efficacious for that application, but uh, for body composition alterations, but maybe not favorable in terms of health. Uh, so that that's all I knew in the mid nineties when I was training. But then I, I went on and did a PhD in physiology and neuroscience and then did postdoctoral fellowship funded by the Department of Defense to look at oxygen toxicity seizures and to develop a mitigation strategy to enhance warfighter resilience and performance in extreme environments. And in the process of doing that, what I was studying was a seizure, mm. a grand mal seizure, formerly known as a, uh, or a tonic-clonic seizure, uh, same, same term. And we were looking at ways to prevent these types of seizures associated with breathing high oxygen in a closed circuit rebreather. It's a type of equipment that the special operations community uses. And uh, and then the you know I looked into what do people do who have seizures mm. where drugs fail because the drugs did not work very well for these types of seizures. And then I discovered the ketogenic diet. You know, I was super excited at the time because I was I could bring nutrition back into my research program, which was very exciting to me. So uh, I did some searching online. The first website that came up was the Charlie Foundation. Mm -hmm. So I actually reached out to and connected with Jim Abrams mm. uh, of the Charlie Foundation, the Hollywood producer that produced Airplane and Naked Gun movie. And then I watched the movie First Do No Harm with Meryl Streep. <laughs> I was like... She did a movie about the ketogenic diet. This is very interesting. So I went to PubMed and I pulled some papers from the late John Freeman and Eric Kossoff and, you know, some from Mayo Clinic. And I was like, there's legitimate science behind this that I, I was not aware of. And uh, and I thought maybe this this approach, I could apply it to the research question that I was funded to study. Uh, but the funding organization, the Office of Navy Research, which is part of the Department of Defense, did not really like the idea of a high fat diet. Mm. And, you know, for warfighter performance, because it was like, you know, they thought it would severely, it would be hard to follow. It would decrease their performance and things. So they were very interested in, uh, you know, and, and the, the work of Jeff Bolick and Stephen Finney, I actually was not aware of that yet. Mm. It was kind of very early and, and you know, uh, I was not aware of, of them at all. I was mostly in the world of neuroscience. Yeah. But so th the military organization wanted me to develop a ketogenic diet and a drug. So uh, I actually did both. I mean, I studied the ketogenic diet. We looked at, we did studies with uh, some intermittent fasting, calorie restriction, and, and developing ketogenic agents for neuroprotection. You know, it was Alzheimer's research project was actually the first one. And then shortly that my seizure projects and then 
a PhD student came into my lab, uh, Dr. Angela Poff. Now she's my research associate and she really wanted to study cancer. Mm. So within a short, within one period of time, I went from not studying ketogenic diets at all to studying, to having a project at the Bird Alzheimer's Center, a PhD student of mine, doc, uh, now Dr. Melanie Brownlow, uh, had an Alzheimer's project, a seizure project, by the Department of Defense, and then a cancer project uh, with some of my startup funds and some foundation funds all within a year. So things got kicked off pretty fast and furious. Mm. <laughs> and then the data kept coming in and it was like, unlike with the drug research I was doing, which was all over the place, we were getting like very, very good data on all these different animal models. Mm -hmm. And I, I became increasingly interested in you know, making this my career path, yeah. like, you know, shifting to nutrition. And with the data that came in from that research, was it then easy to secure funding for human or clinical trials? Or is that still or was that a challenge at, at that particular time? It has. It was a challenge then and it is a challenge now, mm. uh, although it's become it's got put on the radar and like clinicaltrials.gov. I don't think there was hardly any trials, maybe a few for epilepsy, uh, nothing for cancer, nothing for many of the things that we study. There's like 40, 40 or more studies right now for cancer and Alzheimer's disease and, and other. even if you type in ketone supplement into clinicaltrials.gov, you get over a hundred. Mm. This is unheard of. Just five years ago, there was none. So there's a, there's a very high interest in the diet and also uh, in producing it through supplementation. So the Department of Defense was a little bit more, they fund riskier projects. Mm. <laughs> so, and I think one of the selling points was when I was researching this for oxygen toxicity, DARPA, which has, they fund a lot of high risk, but high reward and very innovative projects. Mm. There was funding at the NIH and also Oxford for developing a ketogenic strategy for enhancing warfighter exercise performance. Mm. And I did not know that at the time. I was uh, really just focused in on seizures, but the more I delved into it, and it was not so much in the public domain, but I found it on the DARPA website that it was like $15 million oh. that they're researching ketones and exercise performance. So I contacted the program manager and I said, you know, look, this not only has the potential to mitigate seizures, these tonic-clonic seizures, which had a, an amazing track record for doing so. And if a drug produced the same anti-seizure effect as the ketogenic diet, it would be a blockbuster. Mm. And that was what I was contracted for. I said, look, you know, it, there's research being done on it enhancing exercise performance. Mm -hmm. So we could get a twofer here. So I think that was kind of like the selling point. So I got a fairly large grant, like in the seven-figure range to uh, study this in an, in an animal model to develop the compounds, you know, uh, characterize it, its pharmacokinetics and actually apply it to an animal model of oxygen toxicity where it had remarkable effects. Mm. Not all ketogenic agents did it. So we had to test a few different ones, but we found an agent that was more neuroprotective and anti-seizure than any other anti-seizure drug that have ever been looked at. Wow. And and we've kind of, you know, focused on that and versions of that yeah. in our in our research. Yeah. And is that the ester that you're talking about, Dom? We've developed a ketone ester that elevates beta hydroxybutyrate and acetoacetate, 
more or less in a one-to-one ratio. And that particular ester had anti-seizure effects. So prior to looking at that ester, we tested uh, a ketone ester that only elevated beta-hydroxybutyrate, and that did not have anti-seizure effects. So I, I didn't fully lose enthusiasm because I contacted a few investigators and they said, well, you really need to elevate acetoacetate too and to keep that redox ratio uh, and when I did that, first we developed the monoester, and then we developed the diester, which was twice as potent than that. And then we did many, many experiments, and every experiment, unlike with drug research, where sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, this strategy of elevating ketones worked every single time. Mm. And that was very interesting. And is this now to market this diester? Is, is that sort of where it's at, or...? Uh, it's right now the diester is in the realm of medical foods and it's more of a scientific research compound. Uh, it's grass certified, but it, you know, it it tastes very bad and to administer it to subjects, you got to put it more or less in a capsule. Oh wow! And I think, and that's, that's really a good way to do it because you can create like a, a valid, uh, uh, control substance Mm -hmm. where you can just put, you know, oil inside the capsule for the experiments that we're doing. But later, you know, as we developed and characterized that, then we started testing other compounds like balanced electrolyte uh, formulations of beta-hydroxybutyrate. So you can take the ketone molecules and combine it with sodium, potassium, calcium, magnesium. Mm. And then you can take that molecule and then formulate it with medium chain triglycerides. So MCTs are remarkable substances that are ketogenic fats, and they also delay the gastric absorption and help to extend that pharmacokinetic profile. So it sustains ketosis for longer. And then we found some remarkable effects with that too. There's anti-seizure effects, anti-anxiety effects, glucose lowering effects, uh, epigenetic effects. And so we have a number of projects on rare uh, genetic diseases, metabolic diseases, um, and and now we're actually focusing probably equal or more attention with formulations of beta-hydroxybutyrate with MCTs and some with ketone esters too. Mm. Depends on on what we're studying. Yeah, it's so interesting because of course over the last few years. We've had um, a lot more of the ketone products come to market. I mean, the ketone salts were the most sort of accessible ones initially, but more sort of ketone esters, which obviously cost quite a bit more. And I've heard people talk about the difference between the two uh, and their relative effectiveness because ketone esters push up your ketones, as I understand it, way more than what a ketone salt would. Does that mean that, a ketone salt is not particularly effective in some realms. Like, what, what is that sort of difference like, Dom? Yeah, that's a good question. It depends on the context in which it's used. Mm. So, if I'm an everyday person and I want to elevate my ketones, uh, definitely higher is not better. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, I have access to pretty much everything, and there's all sorts of ketone esters in my office here and in the lab or whatever. Uh, and you know, if I if my ketones get up to th- above three, four, and five, I don't feel good. Like, and I mm. think that's a an acidosis that you're putting on your body, and it's a very unnatural state. And uh, you know, and this is coming from someone who studies ketone esters and has yeah. patents and stuff on. It. So I would not, you know, it 
in the context of certain disease states like glucose transporter type 1 deficiency syndrome and Kabuki mm-hmm. syndrome, Angelman syndrome, oxygen toxicity seizures, I think a, a large dose of a ketone ester could be helpful. Mm. But for most of the things that we study, you know, you really want to achieve what could be achieved with an electrolyte, a ketone electrolyte formulation, which is like one millimolar Mm -hmm. to like one to two in that range, I think is very therapeutic. Uh, You're elevating beta hydroxybutyrate to where you're getting epigenetic effects, glucose lowering effects. And I do think, I mean, in our animal models, once we, if we push ketones too high, we see blood pH starts to come down and it Mm. does produce an acidosis and the animals get lethargic. They start sort of hyperventilating. They become very hypoglycemic Mm. uh, and they're just unwell. They don't perform well. But once we, if we boost it up into that range, you know, up into that like one to two millimolar range, it doesn't seem to disrupt normal physiology. And I think what's happening. So, and I've done a lot of, measurements on myself, measuring insulin in response to these agents. Mm. What, what's happening, what appears to be happening is that if you increase ketone levels uh, two millimolar or higher above what your baseline is, then that actually has stimulates a counter-regulatory effect. You get a release in insulin. Mm. So when you're on a ketogenic diet, what regulates your ketone production is as ketone levels get elevated, then the ketones actually cause a, a release of insulin and that decreases beta oxidation of fatty acids. Mm. You know, it decreases lipolysis a little bit and it's a nice little feedback. And then there's ketone urea, there's, you know, ketone induced insulin release and a few other mechanisms, uh, enzymatic mechanisms. But when you dose a big dose of ketone ester, it kind of short circuits all that. Mm. And your it actually stimulates insulin release. So your ketones will go up and you'll get some release of insulin and then the ketones get burned and used by your body. Mm. And then the insulin will actually increase uh, glucose disposal. So you'll become hypoketotic and hypoglycemic an hour or two later. So I observed Mm. this with the ketone beta hydroxybutyrate monoester Mm. and I would get like a headache after about two hours or so. And I just, I didn't feel good. And I realized that it was sort of like, you know, it was a dosing thing. So maybe if you back off the dose a little bit, you know, and then I would just take a smaller dose. And if I would just go up to one or two, then I wouldn't, I couldn't, if I did an insulin assay, it was imperceptible. But Mm. once I went above two and I've kind of confirmed this in other people and we see it in our animal models too, then you actually release insulin. And then that's, you know, triggers glucose uptake. uh, And it, you know, in the context of like exercise or something like that, probably not advantageous. Mm. Um, Now, the question is, if, if then, you know, getting to a level of one or two is advantageous and above two can be counterproductive, then I could use a ketone electrolyte, I could be giving, I could deliver beta hydroxybutyrate and also delivering electrolytes, in a ratio similar to other electrolyte products, like uh, Element is one, Element mm. T. So actually, the the ketone salt formulation that's most tolerable and efficacious is one that has sort of a ratio of sodium, potassium, you know, calcium, magnesium. Yeah. And then it's a little bit more tolerable. So you you could potentially delivering electrolytes, which may be a little bit low on a ketogenic diet, has a naturetic effect. 
and uh, a mild diuretic effect too. So mm. getting in lots of liquid ketones and electrolytes, you know, a ketone salt product could be an ergogenic aid. I think mm. studies need to be done on that. Uh, I think the effect would be pretty mild, but I'm more interested in sort of the health benefits yeah. of the ketones. So that's what we're studying. Yeah, it's interesting. I I have proved it at home, and I um, I'm mm-hmm. a runner, and I often I take a sachet because I I run early, and whilst I can take on board food before another sort of transition with running, I just find it easier to take fluid, and so I have the prove it salt and. I really notice it. And it's interesting when I look at literature around sports performance and ketones, and and of course, there's not a lot there, um, but I haven't found anything to sort of suggest taking a ketone salt that will lift your levels by a millimolar um, would in fact um, give you that performance benefit. But I feel it and, and lots of my clients do as well. Interesting. Yeah, Jeff Volick, like prove it. Actually, they got started because of our patent. <laughs> actually, ah. that's a little bit of backstory. Uh, so, you know, the patent really was for beta hydroxybutyrate and MCT together. So, although I don't, I don't know what they're selling now, but you know, sometimes they, I don't know. It's a long story, but uh, but I know, and I try to like stay pretty much neutral, even yeah. though we have you know patents and products and stuff. I don't have my own product, so people. Sometimes it's marketed in a way that this is Dominic's product, you know, uh, yeah. but I do not have my own product. So just as uh, be in academia, it's very, you know, you have to say kind of neutral and we yeah. have the university owns the patents and they have multiple licensing partners. But I will say that Jeff Volick, I believe, did a study on the Prove It product and it was beta hydroxybutyrate electrolyte salt combined with caffeine. It might have been with or without caffeine. Mm. I forget, but they did see a performance advantage. Mm. And it was like a few percentage, maybe like 5% or something like that. You know, and I mean, in animal models, when we dose them up, yeah, they run longer on a rotor rod device or treadmill mm. or something like that. So, you know, when, you, when you're in the lab and you see that when you administer these things, the animals run farther. You tend to be like, oh, maybe I should be using this. Or they do better on learning memory tests or uh, they do have an anti-anxiety effect that we've published on. Uh, there, there are benefits. I, I think the human studies need to catch up with the animal work. There's a lot yeah. of compelling animal work. Yeah. But animal studies are informative, but not always predictive. Yeah. And some of these things are expensive, so you don't want to be spending your money. They're sort of the, the, the literature is very nascent, you know, on, on this. So I think it's developing sort of when I was uh, when when I was in college as an undergrad, I took I took exercise physiology and it's the only C I got in college. Mm-hmm. Right. Because the final was a disproportionate amount of our grade. And we had to talk about three different ergogenic aids. And I talked about creatine monohydrate. No one would argue that creatine monohydrate because I was very convinced early on in the literature that this was going to be something that's going to be, it's going to change the world. Mm. And I I wrote like a thesis about this for my final exam. And it was like basically a big X through it. There's no science to support what you're saying here. There's no clear scientific rationale that creatine would have any effect. So I failed the, I got, you know, B's or whatever on the early test and failed the final exam because it was uh, part of it. And I I always want to go back to my exercise physiology professor and say, hey, I mean, this was 1995-ish or something. Mm. So the literature was not there. There was only a couple studies. 
But, and I think the th- same thing will happen with ketones. So ketones mm. are a form of energy. When you consume it, the body can make more ATP, the energy currency, especially in the brain, which mm. I'm mostly interested in. Yeah. So I think the science would catch up, but it's got a ways to go. Yeah. And Dom, is there any, you know, obviously the therapeutic benefit of ketones and, and what you're studying, there's clear um, reason for people to be interested in, in how they work to, sub, to subsequently, you know, use them themselves sometime in the future. But what about just your average person like me? Like I don't, I follow a lower carb approach. I'm, I don't follow a ketogenic approach. And I've just told you how I sort of use them, but is there an application for ketone salts, ketone esters, for just the general population in your view, or is it just sort of, well, yeah, no. What are your Mm -hmm. thoughts? That's a good question. When I got into this research, I never thought that these ketogenic compounds would go mainstream, Mm. right? But, you know, the university always want to make patents out of things. And then we have licensing partners like, you know, Prove It and Mm -hmm. other companies. and then what what happens is that millions of people, you know, use the product and then they email me and they say, like, here's my blood work. And then the science, you know, at the time there was no clinical trials, but now you go to clinicaltrials.gov and you mm-hmm. type in ketone supplement and there's like dozens, if not hundreds of registered clinical trials where data is being collected. Some of it's published in the in the realm of of exercise it's kind of neutral mm. i think um so the problem with ketone salts i think is that the formulations there could be purity and potency but also tolerability mm. so with many people they consume a ketone salt product and it's just it goes right through them it's not tolerable the electrolytes are not balanced so you know i've worked with different companies so the product i use it's called keto start by mm. Audacious Nutrition. Uh, prove it's a product I have used. It's been around a while. Obviously, I'm not going to, it's my patent, so I can't, you know, Yeah. I'll just say that. Uh, uh, but it's been around, but there are other things that are equally good. And I think uh, they have a balanced electrolyte formulation. So what I'm currently using is uh, Keto Start, and that's that's pretty good. There's a couple out there. The ketone esters are also, you could just simply take a lower dose. The Mm. only problem with ketone esters, well, the main problem, I think, is that, you know, I did see that insulin releasing effect when you take too much of it and then the taste and then they cost more. Mm. Uh, But the taste is a big hurdle for some people. So the ketone salts are, are very, I think my body gets a big benefit from electrolytes. Mm. So, so say if I take an electrolyte product like Element with no ketones, I can take it and I can feel an effect. So if I take a product that's similar to element and electrolytes like keto start, that's delivering ketones and also has some caffeine in it. Then I have electrolytes, ketones and caffeine. And then that's like the sweet spot for me. So that's what I'll just use. Like, uh, I use them actually pretty sparingly, just like a half of a packet Mm. in like 16 ounces of water. And I'll put creatine in that too. What else? acetyl L-carnitine. I'm not like too big on supplements, but there are some things that you want to take some supplements on a ketogenic diet you want to consume. And, um, you know, I'll take that and I'll feel like a very legitimate boost before exercising that, uh, that I think should be studied. Most, most of these things are studied as a single standalone agent, but I would love to do a study where it's like ketone electrolytes, caffeine, 
creatine, acetyl L-carnitine, and maybe a mm. few other like beta alanine or something like that. I think yeah. you'll see a really nice effect. Yeah, interesting. So acetyl um, carnitine to help shut all the fat across your tissues. Like, what's the yeah? What would be the benefit for someone like you who has been on a ketogenic diet for or or a, a low carb diet for like a number of years? Yeah, good question. So with the um, the epilepsy world, when kids are put on a ketogenic diet and you do blood work on them mm. and on their nutritional status. One of the things that you see very often, one of the biggest deficiencies that we see is actually carnitine deficiency. <gasps> uh, and the carnitine is becoming deficient just because your body is burning huge amounts of fat <laughs> relative to what. So, you know, carnitine helps to transport fatty acids into the mitochondria to be used as fuel. And when you reverse the carnitine deficiency in kids on a ketogenic diet, then they have more energy. Yeah. So, and you're getting that energy from fat. So it's like, wow, I'm burning, I'm have more energy and energy is coming from fat. So, uh, so I found in myself too, that I tend to be on the lower, if, if I'm doing a really strict ketogenic diet, my carnitine levels tend to drop into normal range. And if I take carnitine tartrate, or I like I like carnitine acetyl L carnitine, and I just buy the bulk powders mm -hmm. and make my own little formulations, like I actually feel a pretty strong neurological effect where it mm -hmm. feels like a nootropic, and then I haven't measured it, but I just feel like it's really accelerating my fat burning process. Yeah. So uh, acetyl L carnitine is one of those supplements I think is really efficacious in the context of a ketogenic diet because you tend to deplete it. We know this from the blood work of, yeah. of kids that follow a very strict ketogenic diet. Yeah. No, that's super interesting because you often like it's a it's it's been popular within that sort of gym realm for a number of years as a fat mm -hmm. burner. But of course if someone's just taking it expecting to see these big uh, improvements, then potentially it's just the context they're using it in is, you know, different to what you're describing. Yeah. And I think, you know, you realize the effect when you're in a deficiency, yeah. you know, if you have enough of it, then, then you have an effect. But I can say that with like acetyl L-carnitine, which crosses the blood brain barrier, um, you know, and I take gram amounts, mm. so I'm not taking like 200 milligrams. I'm taking like oh, yeah. two to four grams per day. Mm. In the beginning, I don't really notice anything, but after about, you know, two weeks, it's like, whoa, I have more energy. And I feel, I mean, people, it's also used for depression and it has all these other benefits too. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's one of the few supplements like creatine, you know, if I, I track religiously, like yeah. how much weight I do and how many reps I get, like I can see, you know, I add a few reps like on bench like one or two reps, but I eat a lot of red meat, so I'm probably getting enough creatine. Yeah. But I always see like a little boost and, you know, the scale goes up about two pounds. And, uh, you know, with ketones, I feel the energy, but with a, a carnitine, acetyl L-carnitine, it's probably one of those, there's like five supplements I would say that I, I really feel oh, and acetyl L-carnitine is one of them. Yeah. Yeah. That's um that's really good to know. And of course, now that you've given us the dose, we'll have a you know a million people will be out there taking two to four grams of uh, <laughs> creatine because <laughs> that's what yeah, Dom does. Yeah, you know that's yeah, what I've. Good. There doesn't seem to, I don't know. I, I I tend not to do. I'm very cautious about recommending things, but Completely. I mean, this is what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah. And I do feel it, and it's one of the things that you know. I was yeah. telling my wife, I was like, 
you know, we should formulate some, there's, there needs to be a formulation here with, you know, the ketones and, uh, but basically, I mean, I'll tell you what, I take half a packet of keto start. Mm. Uh, sometimes I use element, which I think is great. And then I just buy the bulk, you know, creatine monohydrate. Yeah. I don't do, there's other forms of creatine, but the monohydrate has the best research on it. Yeah. Acetyl carnitine. I think beta alanine offers some advantages too, but I can't deal with the tingling effect. Ah, uh, you notice it. that. Yeah, for me, it's not something that I want to deal with. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I feel it kind of strongly. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, to be fair, that's how Element was born, right? And this sort of, they came up with that formula and were doing it themselves and then produced. Maybe that's yeah. another patent for the university, Don. Yeah, yeah. I, I need to actually do more uh, performance research. Like we've done the diet and different single agents, but I I have different formulations that I've tested that I really feel strongly that work. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's, I need to do that. I need to get some little, a little pocket of money <laughs> that mm. I can just do a mini study on the side to look at uh, different formulations. Yeah. And you probably need about five extra hours in a day as well, right? Like yeah. everything else. Yeah. I teach full time and then I, I supervise many different research projects and do a whole lot of committee work too. Yeah. So, and I live on a farm and I got cows and I got probably do about 20 hours of farm work a week. So yeah. Yeah. That's my exercise nowadays. Yeah. No, I hear you. Um, so Dom, you mentioned the diet and of course, noticing the, uh, you know, there's much more research coming out now about the efficacy of a ketogenic diet in these therapeutic areas. But of course, if we just sort of take a step back and like, it's exploded over the last 15 years in the lay public with the information that's available, the books that have been published. I mean, Atkins was, I'd say, modern day, sort of one of the first, but then the modified Atkins came out with Dr. Westman and uh, and then a whole bunch of other keto books. Yet, and So my first question is, with all the claims that are being made around the ketogenic diet from people who might not Dr. Westman, but you know, other people out there who may make claims about it. Do you get frustrated that long that, or what people might believe about it that we haven't yet proven in research? Like, do you have any thoughts around that? Cause I often have thoughts around that. Yeah. That's incredibly frustrating to me because as an academic scientist, it gives the ketogenic diet a bad name. Mm. And, uh, and that's why I think I'm firmly planted. My main project has always been seizures and neuroprotection mm. and brain energy metabolism. And then, you know, neuropharmacology and the drug tends to work remarkably well and interesting in that realm. Uh, but the enthusiasm and a lot of attention has been on weight loss, glycemic control and exercise. Mm. So for weight loss, and I, I would say weight loss is one of those things where there's good data yeah. on it. But I, I do think I'm in the group of people that think calories do matter. Yeah. And uh, it might not be 100% of it, but I think it's like 90% or mm. maybe 80. I mean, there's a lot of hormonal changes you know, insulin, suppressing insulin signaling. And then, of course, uh, when you change your metabolic physiology, it has pretty big impact on appetite regulation and other things. And and then there's chronic changes that happen over time where you have upregulation of fatty acid oxidation and uh, ketone transport, ketone production, ketone utilization, things like that. And I think that needs to be appreciated, which is kind of ignored in the calories in, calories out group mm. <laughs> when it comes to weight loss. Uh, it seems to be appreciated. We definitely need some more research on it. 
But, uh, but no doubt with most people who follow a ketogenic diet, they tend to inadvertently, you know, eat more calorie, eat less calories over time simply because a ketogenic diet meal is hypopalatable for many mm. people. You know what I mean? <laughs> so the yeah. high fat, it's kind of bland. It can be from a clinical standpoint. Uh, well, I should just restate it. It's not hyperpalatable where you have sugar and fat. Yeah combination mm. which can drive one to have eat surplus calories mm. so in that way it's it's not only good for weight loss but the big big problem with diets is weight maintenance yeah. so if you were in the group of people who enjoy and can sustain that kind of eating pattern then that could be a way that you can sustain your weight loss yeah and for eh, about a third of the people i think it's a good option yeah, it's interesting because I often hear it said, you know, you can't adhere to a ketogenic diet. You know, it's almost before even the diet is considered, it's almost already dismissed. And if you look at um, like the US news, for example, the keto diet, like paleo, is always well down in the list of popular good diets or good diets to be following. Not that I'm suggesting that this is where we should take out information, but it's what a lot of people might see. And so they see that it's not a not recommended. They hear that it's hard to adhere to. And then I just feel a bit frustrated for people because it's almost like it's taken off the table as an option before they're even given the opportunity to, to try it. Yeah, that brings up the question, is chronic ketosis mm. natural and is it healthy? Yeah. So even though I'm a big fan of the ketogenic diet and, you know, I believe that the clinical ketogenic diet is not natural. 90%, mm. 80% fat is not natural. And it's probably not... Uh, it's not optimal, yeah. right? When we're, it's not optimal for, you know, exercise performance and things mm. like that. It has many advantages. And I think the advantages really come from a neurological standpoint mm. in, in the context of different disease processes. But I do believe that, you know, if you're normal, healthy, and you're a robust athlete, I think intermittent ketosis can be very beneficial. Mm. So following a ketogenic diet for a period of time, that forces these adaptations in fat oxidation, ketone production, and ketone utilization. And I believe once we do that, it's actually creating sort of like a metabolic memory. Because mm -hmm. when you go back to that, you know, I've seen people embark on a diet to lose weight for sport or something like that and it becomes easier each time they do it mm. and i believe it's beyond that learning curve thing i think your body it's almost like when you fast right the first time it might be kind of hard but then you do it and it's like oh this is easier this is this is easy and i believe that once you do it it sets off a cascade of physiological effects and it sort of and then you have sort of I think there's epigenetic changes, mm -hmm. you know, that needs to be studied. I'm going out on a limb yeah, and, yeah. and speculating that there's pretty robust things that are activated that when, if they're activated prior, subsequently, these processes get kicked on faster. Mm -hmm. And we do know this in animal models. So there's some rationale behind, you know, metabolic switching. If you take an animal, fast it, or put it on a ketogenic diet and then just throw it back on a standard diet for months and then put it back on a ketogenic diet, the ketones get rise much faster. Mm. So it's almost like they have this metabolic memory. I mean, you know, athletes know that if they strength athletes in particular, if they work up to like, you know, 500 pound deadlift or something and take time off, it may have taken them many years to get there where they can jump back to it and a short amount of time, mm. you know, and I think the same happens with our metabolism.
Yeah, that's such a good point. Dom, I heard you discuss on one of Peter Atiyah's episodes of your sort of clinical experience with the the sex difference of a ketogenic diet between men and women and um, the potential downsides for women might be a down-regulation of thyroid, though that hadn't been studied at the time that you were sort of discussing it. You were just talking about what you've seen. Um, Has there been any additional information or research in sex differences in the keto diet and um, because you of course hear that you know women shouldn't do keto which might just mean yeah. that women shouldn't do keto for the rest of their lives but but I don't know what are your thoughts now have they evolved have they changed based on new information well my student presented a PhD working in progress talk um yesterday actually mm. where we do see sex differences in different rodent models mm. you know in two different strains actually um you know women tend to in females they tend to maybe become a little more hypoglycemic yeah. in response to uh fasting or low-carb diets and that could produce like a stress response it could activate the sympathetic nervous system you know i've seen cortisol elevated uh it could also in the context of low glucose and lower insulin, reduce active thyroid T3 and maybe Mm -hmm. get some reverse T3, you know, that. So uh, now this is all theoretical and I haven't seen a a whole lot of data, but I will say from the perspective of the clinical data in epilepsy, Mm -hmm. where kids are put on a ketogenic diet and they become uh, adolescents and then into adulthood, Amenorrhea is mm. something that's seen, and it's not completely correlated with uh, weight loss mm. or uh, or calorie deficit, which that's is like in female athletes. You know, this is yeah. kind of ubiquitous in advanced female athletes. Amenorrhea is quite common, and in in you know in the world of epilepsy, when you put it's like five times higher rates of amenorrhea in women that are on a eucaloric ketogenic diet. So, yeah. so these are some things to, to consider uh, for me. So the diet that I'm talking about was deficient. I feel it's deficient in protein. Mm-hmm. The classical ketogenic diet is very low in protein. Mm-hmm. And I would say it's deficient in protein. I am of the opinion of a high protein ketogenic diet where it's 1.5 to 2 grams per kilogram that may Mm. sound like a lot but uh and this is kind of where i disagree (laughs) not disagree but i feel that a classical ketogenic diet works and i think a higher protein modified ketogenic diet can also work for epilepsy that has been my communication with adult epilepsy patients when they can switch uh, and I think it helps mitigate some of that muscle loss too yeah. associated and they can keep their ketones elevated, especially when you incorporate things like MCTs into the diet. So I, I think there's a lot of, a lot of, uh, uh, improvements that we can mm-hmm. do with the, with the ketogenic diet. I don't think it has to be necessarily as strict, but it depends on, on the situation. So if you apply that diet, a higher protein diet in the context of women, you know, two grams per kilogram, I don't think you would see the same suppression. And if they're not over-exercising, if they're not Mm. calorie restricting, if they're not doing crazy intermittent fasting protocols, if they're getting in the nutrition that they need, you know, three or four meals a day and with a ketogenic diet, I I don't think they'd see big changes in hormones. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. And it would be an interesting study, right? To sort of actually test that out because what you're saying makes, makes a whole heap of sense. 
Yeah, the proteins are really important. Once you restrict protein, then you start to see some hormonal uh, dysregulation. Mm. Where it's interesting, I put up a post in social media of I can't remember. It was around the keto diet and around that you actually. Oh, there's a book that is advocating for a keto approach to a very low calorie diet, and they've got it in the book that um, we need to lower protein because of gluconeogenesis in a ketogenic diet. Um, and I sort of thought, well, I'm not sure that that's really the thinking around keto anymore for the general population who are just looking at, you know, fat loss and improvement in metabolic health. Um, and it sounds to me like you're of the same opinion that gluconeogenesis isn't really something we need to be so concerned about. No, gluconeogenesis is a natural thing that's advantageous to the athlete, especially because mm -hmm. it helps to liberate, you know, it stimulates well, there's gluconeogenesis, but also glycogenolysis would yeah. be important when, you know, someone on a ketogenic diet engages in intense exercise. They're seeing some gluconeogenesis, but they're also seeing glycogenolysis. Mm. So the liberation of stored glycogen for energy. And that's a normal process that helps to ensure continuous fuel flow to our central nervous system and to our muscles, mm. you know, especially in highly higher intensity glycolytic, glycolytic anaerobic work where you're activating those you know type 2a type 2b fast twitch low oxidative fibers are definitely need glucose they don't really run well on ketones yeah. so they're going to need glucose for fuel yeah yeah interesting and yeah i yeah i agree um dom you obviously a lot of your work is in that therapeutic space with with ketones and there's more and more research in and around the um the brain the neurological conditions what do we know about the importance or the effect of either a ketogenic or let's say ketogenic diet for conditions such as alzheimer's dementia maybe parkinson's any updates there yeah i would say the research is in humans at least is pretty uh nascent as you know yeah. it's an emerging area of research the animal work is compelling. Animal work is informative, not always mm. predictive. Uh, if you go on clinicaltrials.gov and just do ketogenic diet or ketone supplement, Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's disease, you're going to see a few trials, about a dozen or so for, mm. par for Alzheimer's disease and a, maybe a few for Parkinson's. So, you know, in our animal work, what we observe, what, one of the a really interesting thing that we observed, we had, um, we had mice and their they overproduce the proteins associated mm. with Alzheimer's, amyloid beta, and, uh, and there's a triple transgenic, you know, with tau and everything, but we use the amyloid. And uh, when, we, when we start the ketogenic intervention in our mouse model, we did not see a reversal or even a slowing so much of the amyloid. There was trends, but uh, I think we started a little bit too late. But mm. what we did see, uh, and you know, this was pretty remarkable. There was a very remarkable increase in motor function hmm. uh, of these animals. And they ran faster. They ran longer on something called a rotor rod, which mm -hmm. looks at balance and also endurance. You could set it at different levels. So that data jumped out and it was unlike anything we had ever seen. Uh, and then another group, the NIH, I think it was Mark Madsen, maybe in collaboration with uh, Dr. Veach applied the uh, the ketone ester, and maybe I think they started the intervention a little bit earlier, but I think it decreased the accumulation of amyloid beta and tau. Mm. 
uh, in human, you know, these animal models have caveats. I'm not super convinced that they are the best model to study. They're informative, not always predictive. Uh, in humans, I think work by Dale Bredesen or theories rather. And I, I think that all the literature as a whole suggests that people with Alzheimer's, there's a subgroup of them, perhaps as high as 30% that have a metabolic phenotype, mm. which means that they would be, they all have some form of brain energy, brain glucose hypometabolism. Yeah. So I think to some extent they will all be responsive to a ketogenic intervention. Mm. But I think about like one third of them really have a a metabolic phenotype where they're going to have a clinically significant improvement in cognitive function, motor function, and things like that. Mm. So I, I think not everybody's going to respond, sort of like epilepsy, right? About two-thirds of people who fail Keep in mind, in, in the epilepsy world, when you put someone on a ketogenic diet, about two-thirds of them respond very mm. well. Mm. They are people that have failed multiple anti-epileptic drugs in combination. Mm. So it's not like, you know, it, with that in mind, I think it should almost be a first line of therapy. But there's also um, about 10, upwards to 15% of people who are super responders, which means they have rapid, permanent, and complete uh, abolishment of their seizures. Yeah. So this is a very interesting group of people. Like, why does it do it? How does the ketogenic diet cure their epilepsy? And that would be the story of uh, uh, Charlie Abrams. Mm. And that's why the Charlie Foundation was started by Jim Abrams, because he had put his son on so many different anti-seizure drugs. They had horrible side effects. They didn't do anything to control his seizures. He went to the library. He discovered the ketogenic diet. Uh, his doctor was kind of reluctant. He finally found John Freeman's group at Johns Hopkins and uh, a dietitian who would help him. And then the ketogenic diet saved Charlie's life. Amazing. So he was so inspired by it. You know, Meryl Streep did a movie, <laughs> First Do No Harm about this. So it th that's an interesting group of people to study. Um, and I think there's a lot of factors. It's like, there's like parent motivation, there's like patient compliance, and then there's like the dietetics team who's like actually doing the diet. So there's like multiple factors. And, and when you when you talk to the, the super responders, when you look at it, you see it's multifactorial. Mm. It's like parents were motivated, the kid fully complied, the you know dietetics team were on top of everything. The neurologist was very supportive, and so I think I think that's important. I think the super responders are kind of biased in some way, but it, but yeah. I think there's a lot to learn from that. So maybe in the world of of Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's, or even cancer, yeah. if you have a very knowledgeable and atten like attentive diet dietetics team and a knowledgeable person behind it and inform caretakers and, and patients, then the outcomes are going to be better. Yeah, amazing. And I see that Dale is speaking at the Metabolic Health Summit this year, mm -hmm. isn't he? Yes. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Yep, he's been, the, he was a keynote speaker a year or two back. Yeah, yeah. 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 It'll be great to um, hear him. Um, Dom, you're, you mentioned cancer, and I understand that with uh cancers in the brain is it glioblastoma there is there's potentially maybe I'm, i might be wrong i probably am but more evidence to suggest the efficacy of a, of a ketogenic approach um in a very hard to treat sort of situation what is the what, 
what do we know about the ketogenic diet and different types of cancers? Like, is there anything that you would very definitively say, yep, that would be an, a worthwhile adjunct therapy or anyone where you would be like, nah, I, I'm not, I wouldn't be comfortable suggesting that. Yeah. I mean, I'll, maybe I'll start with that first. Uh, there are a number of cancers that have like mutations associated with it where they have the ability to use fatty acids and maybe even ketones as a source mm -hmm. of energy and most likely biosynthetic processes. You know, there's a, a the, in melanoma, there's the BRAF uh, V600E mutation. Mm -hmm. And and those that cancer type is endowed with the ability to use acetoacetate as an energy source and maybe for biosynthetic processes. So I suspect that there's other cancers too. Uh, but most importantly, I think it's important to appreciate, like I got interested in the ketogenic diet for brain cancer because those patients have seizures. Mm -hmm. And then I was looking into it and it's like, oh, maybe the ketogenic diet could actually decrease cancer growth because it's restricting glucose. So when people say use the ketogenic diet to starve cancer, that's mm -hmm. like maybe 10% of what's going on. Mm -hmm. uh, it is limiting glucose availability, and that's the primary energy source for cancer cells, especially the more aggressive the, the cancer, the more it uses glucose. But it's also suppressing hormone and uh, insulin and insulin-associated signaling. So mm -hmm. You know, AMP kinase is activated, mTOR goes down, IGF-1 goes down, uh, many different growth factors associated with cancer growth and proliferation are lowered. And, uh, and that's going to have a favorable effect on outcomes. And mm -hmm. I think uh, ketogenic diets can be a good adjuvant to the standard of care. So mm -hmm. if you're going to use chemo and radiation uh, you know, simply lowering glucose and insulin, insulin increases glycolysis. So just mm. simply, if we're not even talking about insulin, glucose, if you lower insulin, glycolysis goes down. And if glycolysis goes down, the pentose phosphate pathway is somewhat inhibited. And then you have less glutathione. And in cancer cells, it's kind of upregulated. So if you decrease that, it decreases the cancer cells endogenous antioxidant capacity. So if you hit the cancer cells with standard of care and standard of care chemo tends to kill cancer cells through an oxidative stress mechanism. Mm. If you inhibit antioxidant enzyme systems and then hit it with an oxidative stimulus, the chemotherapy or radiation actually kills cancer cells, not by causing double-stranded Nixon DNA, mm. but by increasing reactive oxygen species, which is toxic to the cancer cells. So if you, t if you go into your chemotherapy in a fasted state that can make the cancer more vulnerable to other modalities, in particular modalities that kill the cancer cells through an oxidative stress mechanism, it also needs to be appreciated that like chemo can, it causes tumor lysis syndrome, it causes autophagy, mm. you know, chemo fasting and ketogenic diet. We hear a lot about autophagy, mm. sort of a natural process. But when you kill cells through chemo, that also stimulates autophagy. And it sends little bits of cells and, and tissues in the bloodstream. And we mm. call this tumor lysis syndrome mm. and, and autophagy too. And that can augment the immune system. So mm. the immune system recognizes it and then it can actually uh, launch you know, a, an immune response to kill cancer cells. So and I think we talk about chemo as being a very a bad thing, but but I think of chemotherapy too. Lower doses could be used potentially too as a means to augment the immune system and mm. and, and 
The ketogenic diet has been shown work by Adrienne Sheck at the Barrow Neurological Institute. I think she's at Arizona now. Can increase cancer-specific immunity, which mm-hmm. means it augments the immune system's ability to recognize and neutralize cancer cells. And I think that's greatly enhanced when it's coupled with the standard of care and immune-based therapies that are yeah. like PD-1 inhibitors, checkpoint inhibitors have been used. And there was a recent study came out in a pretty high impact journal showing that the ketogenic diet augments uh, these checkpoint inhibitors. So that yeah. that's a very interesting avenue of research. Yeah. And how long would it take for that particular type of research, the research that you were just describing, to potentially be in um, any sort of standard of care for cancer or anything like that, Dom? Like what, what, I mean, are you crystal ball gazing or do we know? Yeah, there's a lot of institutes that are very willing uh, and able to do this. So uh, we have a new CEO at the Moffitt Cancer Center who's very enthusiastic about low-carb diets and ketogenic diets. Uh, and we have a team there that's that's pretty capable and, and interested in doing this. Uh, so we need national, you know, NIH funding to do this. And there has become a lot of clinical trials. 10 years ago, there were no trials. And now there's about 40 or more clinical trials on the ketogenic diet, primarily used as uh, an adjuvant to uh, standard of care. I think there are some trials where it advanced cancers is being maybe used as a standalone just for quality of life kind of situation. Um so the science needs to be done in as much of a controlled uh, study as possible. Obviously, it's super hard to do a randomized <laughs> controlled clinical trial with the mm. ketogenic diet. But uh, studies are being done. And, and I think the data is going is very favorable that the ketogenic diet is not doing any harm and is increasing the quality of life of patients and also helping them change metabolic parameters that would make them more responsive to therapy, but also can uh, prevent them from getting cancer after uh, you know the treatment. So mm. that's an important thing. So uh, you know, people go through treatment and they're quote unquote cancer free, but it's really what's most important is those years after you go through treatment yeah. and and keeping your immune system as healthy as possible and your immune system is intimately linked to your metabolic health. So yeah. just keeping really it's about keeping your weight down, keeping metabolic parameters in check, exercising, of course, and doing all those things is generally that you're we know keep us as healthy as possible. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I remember seeing a study by Ruth Patterson showing cancer remission was better or survival rate was better in women who practice some level of intermittent fasting. It actually wasn't comp- like it wasn't a, a very aggressive intermittent fast either. It might have been like a 13 night overnight fast. But even that, of course, you know, intermittent fasting and ketogenic diets, they they uh, share similar benefits, I suppose. So mm-hmm. that's um, yeah. some sort of same sort of line, I guess. For sure. Um, Dom, I'm mindful of your time. You've been very generous. Thank you. Two more questions. One, uh, alcohol and ketones. When I've had like a glass of wine, it hasn't necessarily impacted on 
ketone production as much as I thought it would. This was, I, I haven't measured my ketones in a number of years, but it's just something that comes up in uh, conversations with clients as well. Um, how does alcohol affect ketones in that ketogenic state? Yeah. And to disclose, I'm actually drinking oh. alcohol now. Uh, it's later in the, so I have four to no more than six ounces per day because I think alcohol is toxic. And I think, um, you know, for me, more than eight to 12 ounces, I, I think the literature is very good that, you know, one glass is fine for males, but it actually says about two glasses, but I'm on the safe end. So I go on the lower dose spectrum. I do notice that if I consume alcohol, that my blood gets thinner. So I think... Mm. Um, like, you know, in taking blood, I've just observed that if I'm in a state of fasting ketosis or ketone ester or something like that, the blood comes out much easier. Mm -hmm. And with alcohol, I noticed a similar thing. And, and I think it decreases uh, platelet clotting, mm -hmm. things like that. I think there's some benefits there on circulation and other things. Uh so there's certain wines, I actually use the wines from a company called Dry Farm Wines, where they have mm -hmm. less than one gram of sugar and they have a very selective process about choosing the wines with no irrigation, no pesticides, no preservatives, things like that. So, and there may be other types of wines out there. I just, um, I've tested them and they all have a, like a glucose lowering effect and they have mm. no effect on ketones. Mm. So whereas other off the shelf brands of wines or beer or something tends to can kick you out of ketosis. So uh, I'm kind of a fan of a small glass, one per day or maybe three times a week of a, of a low sugar wine. And I think these wines have less than one gram of sugar per bottle. So they're really not going to impact ketosis. And the literature on alcohol is a little bit mixed, but I'm of the opinion that four to six ounces up to probably maybe even two glasses, which would be 12 ounces a day for males are probably okay. And yeah. maybe a little bit less for women. Yeah. I did like the way you were like every day or maybe just three times a week. <laughs> really? You yeah. covered your bases. That was quite good. Uh, when when you see the, the continuous glucose monitor, is it is it doing something with insulin to make it drop? Blood glucose. What's what's I've offered again one with alcohol. Time. Yeah. What's the story? So very interesting, and I still need to measure my insulin response to alcohol, and I have some kits set aside to do that. But um, but if you consume alcohol with food, it can magnify the effect of insulin. So uh, there are people sending me data eating pasta and drinking a big glass of wine with it, and their glucose goes down. Yeah. So uh, and then I looked into this, and I saw there's literature to show that alcohol can uh, magnify the release of insulin. Although if you're in a fasted state and you drink alcohol and glucose goes down, then it's, it's not really releasing insulin, alcohol mm. by itself, very small insulin. I think I measured once, but I need to do alcohol and carbs together mm. is the next experiment I'm going to do. Uh, but alcohol will decrease gluconeogenesis. So hepatic gluconeogenesis is a very energy dependent process. Yeah. And when you drink alcohol, it causes a redox shift in the liver, which kind of de-energizes the liver in a way or impairs the liver function mm. in a way that it could decrease gluconeogenesis because the gluconeogenesis is a uh, something that a healthy liver does. And if you go into alcoholic ketoacidosis, that happens when you're fasting and you drink a bunch of alcohol mm. and the alcohol inhibits hepatic gluconeogenesis and tanks your glucose, and then you have runaway ketogenesis mm. from uh, alcohol-induced redox shift in liver function, which 
you know, causes uh, a a big decrease in gluconeogenesis. So this is quite common in like, uh, you know, Mardi Gras or (laughs) situations where spring break where kids are just drink a case of beer on empty stomach. It can send them to the emergency room. My, my friends that work in the emergency room tend to see this often. Wow. Okay. So, so my strategy of having like a glass of wine and like hot chips, for example, when I'm out at a pub, that's fine. Actually, I'm protecting myself from this potential runaway ketogenesis. (laughs) Everything in moderation. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Moderation. Yeah. 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 Um, Dom, look, thank you so much for your time. You've been super generous and not only obviously um, this evening, but on your Instagram, you've got such a wealth of um, super interesting studies, your own experiments with the continuous glucose monitor uh, and also just what's going on um, in your sort of neck of the woods with regards to your research and of course the Metabolic Health Summit, which I know that you um, have quite a large role in organizing, uh, which I'm coming to, which I'm very excited about. Fantastic. Oh, that'd be great to have you there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for mentioning that. And also, you know, my website is ketonutrition.org. And then, you know, the Metabolic Health Summit is, you know, an online educational platform. We have a virtual. uh, We hope to see everybody there in person, but if you can't make it, they're virtual. Uh, We're going to make that the best experience possible and offers a lot of uh, perks through the virtual platform. Um, We'd love to see you there. And there's going to be basic scientists, clinicians, uh, patients, and many different companies that have scrambled to this space. uh, And they're offering, whether it be food, a supplement, or a uh, a digital platform that for as far as tracking, ketone Mm -hmm. monitoring, a lot of very interesting technologies will be showcased there too. Yeah, no, that sounds awesome, Dom. And I have um, been to the online summit for the last couple of years and really enjoyed just that opportunity to listen to all of those people you mentioned sort of share that information. Um, So um, I highly recommend it. All right, Dom, well, I'll let you get back to your wine and your dinner and your evening. And so thank you so much. Great connecting with you, Mickey. Thanks for having me. All right, team, hope you really enjoyed that. Such a thrill to be able to chat to Dom. So generous with his time and his information. And if you can make that Metabolic Health Summit, I cannot recommend it enough. So many quality, talented speakers who are sharing their new and emerging research in in and around the ketogenic diet space. Next week on the podcast, I am delighted to bring to you the conversation that I had with Michelle Martini, who is someone I've been following for a number of years now, as she has shared her journey on addressing her health and well-being issues through the paleo primal diet to move into the space where mindset's super important to her and really developing some foundational strategies to optimize her health and well-being over time and she's now helping a number of people in their own journeys and we talk about some of those really important tools and strategies that she has learned along the way and that she shares not only on Instagram but one-on-one with the people that she coaches in her coaching groups. So I really look forward to bringing that one to you. I hope you enjoyed the conversation I had today. You have a great week and you can catch me over on Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition on Twitter and Instagram at Mickey Willardin or over on my webpage mickeywillardin.com 
where you can, in addition to signing up to one of those meal plans, book a one-on-one consult with me. By the way, team, if you're after any protein powder or product, if you head to www.newzest.co.nz, you'll get 20% off discount with Mickey20. Pop that in the show notes. Or if you're after a pair of Hokas, you can get 30% off on the Hoka New Zealand website with Team Mickey. All in capitals. Also pop that in the show notes as well. You have a great week and look forward to catching up next week.